Please turn to 1 Timothy 2, uh, 9 through 15. 1 Timothy 2. The conclusion of this uh, chapter. And uh, follow along from verse 9 to the end. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was not was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. <clears throat> if there was anything in last week's sermon that frustrated you, you will be absolutely apoplectic tonight. I uh, thought about encouraging people to come tonight, (laughs) but I didn't say anything, and I was kind of hoping you didn't show up either. (laughs) But here we go. Uh, Paul is in in this chapter giving directions for public worship, and as he's given us thus far directions for prayer, the kind of prayer, the content of our prayer, and who should lead in prayer, which is men— uh, he now comes to the directions from women uh, in relation to worship. And it, uh, Frances was telling me last week, a uh, Bible study she went to, and this passage was read, and they, uh, a women's Bible study, and everyone was absolutely livid about what it had to say. And so it's important for us, and I hope that we will by, by the time we get to the end, it's hope, important for us to try to understand uh, what is being communicated here and the purposes of it. And I have a few introductory points that I want to make before I get into the content of the chapter. Uh, the first thing is, number one, is Paul is not a woman hater. At least that's my opinion. And I, I, I as people read these words, they certainly would, would think that about him, that he has a real desire to put women down and uh, humiliate them. And a couple reasons why I don't think Paul is a woman hater is on the one hand, he had a very deep concern for the care of women uh, in Ephesians chapter 5. Um, and uh, go ahead and turn there in his instructions for husbands, <clears throat> Ephesians five twenty five. He says, after telling women to submit to their husbands, he says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. 
He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. And Peter has a companion passage. I won't have you turn there. In 1 Peter 3, he says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Husbands are supposed to love their wives. They are supposed to cherish them. They are supposed to nourish them. You may not like the weaker vessel point, but nevertheless, a husband is supposed to care for his wife and recognize that she's an equal heir with him of the grace of life. So Paul has a great concern for uh, women to be cared for. Another section, if you want to turn to the book of Acts, there's several passages I want to take you to. Women were an important part of Paul's life and ministry. And we begin at Acts 16, verses 14 and 15. Paul is continuing on in his ministry. And um, in 14, it says, One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay and she prevailed upon us. So here Paul has this relationship with Lydia and goes to stay in her home, accepts her hospitality. Uh, a couple chapters later, Acts 18, uh, Acts 18, 1 through 3, says, After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. So he cultivates this relationship with this couple, Priscilla and Aquila. And we're going to come back to her in just a moment. And then uh, one other passage in Acts 17, should have given you at first, back up to Acts 17, verse 1. It says, now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and silence, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. So women were an important part of his fellowship and ministry. He didn't send them away. And in the uh, final chapter of Romans, Romans 16, there are, I won't have you turn there, there's at least eight different women that he expresses appreciation for and... Um, commends them and gives thanks to them. So 
I think it's wrong to assume that in Paul's comments here, he's um, hating women. A second introductory thought is uh, just understanding Bible and culture. We have to agree on and embrace the fact that the Bible is not culturally conditioned. In other words, what it says uh, in that gen- in that time, what the Bible says is applicable for every generation. We don't want to go down the, the wrong path and say, well, the Bible was only for them and not for us. No, the Bible was written by God for every generation. But nevertheless... Uh, the Bible was often was written often in a culture or in a particular cultural situation. And one of the things that we at least have to think about is the the town of Ephesus was the place where there was the temple to the goddess Artemis. And it was one of the wonders of the ancient world. And even today, when you go to if you go to Ephesus, you'll see the remnants of this temple, and it's still impressive even today. And it's nothing like it was back in the first century. But the dominant religion in Ephesus was the worship of uh, the goddess Artemis, who was the god of ferti- goddess of fertility. And um, it would have been very understandable. It was a very female-dominated culture, uh, uh, an order of the feminism of the ancient world. And it would have made sense that that would have been working its way into the worship of the church. And so that Paul might have felt it was helpful to deal with that. Not that that's the only culture that had that issue or that it's not applicable in all time. But nevertheless, that might have been part of Paul's reason to address this. A third introductory thought is simply the fact that when Paul is dealing here with worship, he's dealing with a principle that we embrace. It's part of our uh, doctrinal standards, and that's the regular principle of worship. And what that means is you and I are not to worship however we feel like it. We want to worship as God has directed us. And so if God has ordained a certain priority, a certain... um, propriety and worship, that's what we need to follow. If he's given us certain directions in his word, we need to follow those directions. And so it's not a, it's not putting down any particular person or any particular group to have a certain order if God has ordained that that order should take place, be it in the, the, uh, the society or the church or community. Uh, I, I don't think this passage is directly applicable necessarily to Sunday school, Bible studies, or personal interaction. <clears throat> I think there may be principles here we can reflect on, but if you're still in Acts, if you haven't left Acts, turn to Acts 18.24. <clears throat> we've, we've looked at Priscilla and Aquila before. It brings up a new person. So Acts 18.24, Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the Scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, 
though he knew only the baptism of John. And he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Aquila and his wife, Priscilla, in their home, uh, brought instruction to this man named Apollos. And she was a part of that. And so the matter of other venues is something we could talk about. But what Paul is addressing here in this chapter, I believe, is the uh, place of worship, the order of worship. What should be done in worship that's proper? And so uh, my fourth introductory point is that the point is not to demean women. They have tremendous gifts and abilities, uh, a great deal of wisdom and even management skills. If you read the Proverbs 31 woman, you know immediately this is a woman of great skill and ability. And even though in the order in the family that God has ordained is the husband is the head of the uh, the, the house and the wife uh, following in that order of authority, um, a wise husband always pays attention to his wife. A man who doesn't listen to his wife is a fool. There's The buck stops with him. He's the responsible one. He's the authority one. But uh, the goal isn't to keep women barefoot, pregnant, and in the kitchen. <clears throat> but there is an order that God has ordained here in the arena of worship, and it's necessary for us to reflect on that. So let's jump into the text itself. So having made clear that uh, prayers and worship, what kind of prayers and how often they should be offered, and that men are the ones to lead those prayers... He now <clears throat> proceeds in the second half of the chapter to give direction to women in relation to, to worship. Men are supposed to prepare to lead worship. Women are supposed to prepare to participate in worship. And the, he, deals, he deals with three areas in their life, their adornment, their silence, and their salvation. So the first, the first area is their adornment. And he speaks of it both positively, negatively, and positively again. <clears throat> so he says here, Likewise also, women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control. He, he's using the word likewise here because just as he gave direction to men, now he's giving direction to women. Just as men need to be prepared to worship God, so women need to be prepared to worship God. How do they re- prepare? Well, um, they uh, men are to lift up holy hands uh, without anger and without quarreling. And women also are to uh, lift up, in a sense, holy hands in the way they, in the, the spirit of holiness when they come. <clears throat> it has to do with their adornment, their apparel, that it should be, and he gives three words to describe it, respectable, it's proper, it's suitable, it's modest, there's a proper, there's a propriety to what they wear, 
and uh, self-control, which is the word for good sense, a soundness of mind, <clears throat> sensible attire. Uh, one author, and I don't remember where I got this quote, he says, they do not have to balk at fashion unless a particular fashion happens to be immoral or indecent. They must not look decidedly old-fashioned, awkward, or queer. It must ever be borne in mind that a proud heart is sometimes concealed behind a mask of pretended modesty. That, too, is sin. Extremes must be carefully avoided. That is what good sense implies. The clothing must be expressive of inner modesty, of a sane outlook on life, the outlook of a Christian. So it's not that a woman has to be dowdy and wear slovenly clothes or any of that. It's not, it's not violating this for a woman to dress attractively and have a nice dress on or however she wants to dress. That's not the point. <clears throat> the point is she comes to worship with a holy uh, attitude as well. Uh, negatively, he says, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire. Again, uh, Paul isn't forbidding jewelry or makeup, though some churches have forbidden that. Another commentator, Michael Bentley, uh, he, he communicates the thought here. This does not mean that ladies should never have their hair cut or styled. Uh, what, what, what Paul was doing was to warn the ladies not to go to the extremes to which Roman women went in those days. They spent many hours plating gold and precious stones into their complicated hairdos. Rather than giving a total ban on the wearing of jewelry or braided hair, Paul is expressing caution in a society where such things were signs of extravagant luxury and proud personal display. So we don't want to do the, what some churches have done, where they forbid women to wear makeup or have any kind of jewelry on. That's really not the point. <clears throat> the point is, uh, just as in the instructions on prayer, the point is not to draw attention to yourself. The point for the women as they come to worship is not to be drawing attention to themselves. It's not to have everybody focus on them because we're coming not to worship any human, we're coming to worship God. That's Paul's point. And then he comes back positively, positively again uh, in the latter part of verse 10, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. <clears throat> so the genuine adornment that uh, honors women and uh, honors God at the same time is that is their good works. Now, this does not mean that they gain salvation by their good works. But what it means is that their good works, their good deeds are a, um, a fruit of the righteousness that they have uh, been that they've received from God. So they, out of a holy love for the Lord, serve the Lord in whatever way they can. Peter, in his instructions, parallels this. He's speaking to wives. Do not let your adorning be external. The braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, 
which in God's sight is very precious. <clears throat> so he's not telling women they have to dress uh, in a pitiful way. He's telling them their focus is to bring their hearts to God in holiness and righteousness and let their appearance uh, be consistent with that. So women coming to worship in their adornment is the first area. The second is their silence. Um, verse 11, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. So the first uh, thing he mentions quietly, but in that end of that first verse 11, he brings up the word submissive. Submission is not a dirty word, <clears throat> though in our society, we often think that. In an ordered society, every single person, man, woman, child, doesn't matter who you are, you submit. Um, we all submit to the authorities. Um, wives submit to their husbands. Children submit to their parents. We submit to the leadership of the church. We all have to learn submission. And the reason we know that submission is not a dirty word is because it epitomizes our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Because you remember he said, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who believes in the name of the Son of God will have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of those that he had given me, but raise them up at the last day. Christ submitted to the will of the Father. And if it's not demeaning for the Son of God to demit, to <clears throat> submit to the will of the Father, then it's not demeaning for you and I to submit to God and his direction in our lives. Uh, we, we do those things because God directs us and, and directs that um, that's what should be best for us. Uh, he directs that a woman <clears throat> should not teach or exercise authority. <clears throat> Again, he's not saying that women don't have brains or can't put two consistent thoughts together. Uh, the women uh, have great uh, wisdom. Uh, and it's not that women are never to teach. Uh, in fact, there's going to be direction given in these pastoral epistles on circumstances where women should be teaching. But the point is coming to worship. Who should lead in worship? Uh, and uh, he's not also he's also not saying that men that women are not equal members of the church. In Galatians Galatians three twenty eight, Paul says there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, uh, neither male or female, for you are all one in Christ. <clears throat> so the question here is not. A woman's ability, it's what is proper according to God's direction in worship. And it's that men should lead and women should follow. 
That's God's ordained order. And there's nothing indecent or demeaning about that if it's God's um, direction. It's not belittling to women. It's not belittling to teenagers. It's not belittling to children to say you need to be quiet and listen. Uh, to worship God under the direction of someone else. <clears throat> it's not a humiliation. It's really an honor to please God. The uh, He goes on in this section regarding their silence to give us a reason for it. And that's verses 13 and 14. For Adam was first was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. So there are two reasons why he <clears throat> directs women to be silent in worship. The first is the order of creation. It's the order that God has placed into society. God made Adam first, and then afterward Eve. <clears throat> and so you get a sense of the priority in creation. You get a sense of the order and the purpose of creation. Adam was created first to rule uh, over all God's creation on his behalf. And then Eve was created to be a helpmeet uh, for Adam. And uh, neither is complete without the other, but in the sense of order, um, Adam created first, and then Eve. <clears throat> uh, let me have you turn to 1 Corinthians 11, 7 to 11. <clears throat> this is in another passage that we struggle with. <clears throat> so I'm not going to get into the head coverings, but I'm going to get into the, a point that Paul makes there. 1 Corinthians 11, 7 through 11. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but, a, but, the, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither, neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. So it has nothing to do with her dignity <clears throat> or her value. It has completely to do with the order God has established for worship. But the second reason, if you didn't like that, you're going to hate this. <clears throat> the second reason is because of the fall. Uh, people find this very odious because uh, the woman was deceived, Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and she became the transgressor. It makes women sound stupid. <clears throat> Well, Adam wasn't deceived, but the woman, she was deceived um, and uh, makes her sound like she's particularly foolish. But what are we to understand from this? Now, it is true that Eve was deceived. Um, and that has to be a truth that is the revelation of God because it's not intuitive when you read Genesis chapter 3. You read Genesis 3, and you don't see her hung out like that. So this has to be God's presentation of it through Paul. And she was deceived, and she became the leader, and Adam the follower. 
And so there is a warning and an indictment of her, the Satan, uh, the serpent found a vulnerability in the woman that he exploited to draw Adam and Eve into sin. <clears throat> but while it is a, an indictment of her, uh, to me, it's a greater indictment of her husband. And maybe we don't pay attention to that, but we ought to pay attention to that because he was there the whole time. He was standing beside his wife the entire time the serpent was talking. And he said nothing. Now, there are indicators in the text in Genesis, and I'm not going to have you turn there. Uh, There's indicators in the text that tell us this. But listen to Genesis 3, 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate. So while the serpent found this vulnerability in Eve, and she was deceived, Adam was standing there letting it all happen. And he should have stepped in to protect his wife and told that serpent to go you know where. And he should have taken the lead. He was the responsible one. But he didn't. He said nothing. And so while in one sense there is a woman to war- uh, a warning, I suppose you might say, that it's not improper for her to submit uh, because her mother Eve was deceived, it's really also a challenge to men. <clears throat> you need to lead. You need to step forward. You need to be the protector of your wife. And while the focus here is the implication on on Eve, there's a an application that we dare not miss. <coughs> Applying to men. But the order of God in worship is <clears throat> that women, men lead the worship, lead in prayer, and um, women follow. And then the third arena, which again is a, a text that is so misused and distorted. Uh, it says in verse 15, yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, Holiness with self-control. So she will be saved through childbirth. Uh, there's a couple different articles. One was referred to me by a fellow by the name of Johannes uh, Wesleyanus. And another one that I read previously, earlier, uh, by Joel McDermott. And um, you can Google it if you want. Joel McDermott childbirth, and it'll bring up the article if you want to get into it. And I found him and his conclusion really very, very helpful to it. Uh, One of the interpretations of this verse, there's three interpretations I want to talk about. The third is the one I'm going to tell you is right. But the first one is that by means of bearing children, that a woman will be rescued from everlasting damnation and merit everlasting glory. Now, there's probably not anybody who believes basically this point 
who would say it just exactly that way. If they believe in justification by faith, they couldn't say that a woman would merit eternal life by bearing children. <clears throat> but there are uh, groups that do advocate that the means or the mark of her salvation is bearing children. And uh, I wasn't really totally familiar with this particular um, philosophy. Uh, Joel McDermott kind of goes into it a little bit more, uh, that apparently in some arenas of the, of the uh, Christian or homeschool movement, Bill Gothard Vision Forum is an, is a view that goes by the name of quiverful or open womb. <clears throat> and uh, what they take this verse to mean is that the women's, woman's primary created purpose is to deliver unlimited children. Um, now, we've been familiar with the Catholic philosophy of, you know, having as many children as you can. When I got to seminary and along among a lot of Dutch families who had eight to ten, ten children, <clears throat> it was kind of their philosophy to have a lot of kids. Um, we teasingly called it Dutch evangelism. <clears throat> it was one way to grow a church, is to have a lot of kids and fill it up. Now, having children is a wonderful blessing, uh, and it's a wonderful gift, and it's a wonderful um, honor that God has given to women. But this philosophy is that a mark or a means of her redemption is through bearing children, That and any thought <clears throat> really is she's unlimited children, regardless of her health, the health of her family, uh, or the health of the children. And it, there are, there are obviously different versions of this, some more moderate, some extremely shrill. Um, some would say any version of family planning is equal to abortion. It puts a huge burden on women. And it makes their sole identity in their giving birth to children. What about uh, the single women. What about women who aren't able to have children? Where is their identity? Where is their salvation? And so this can't be what this verse is telling us. The second interpretation of it, she will come safely through childbirth. Now, that patently is obvious on the, on the, on the top of it because we know throughout history Sadly, too many women have died in childbirth in previous generations and centuries and without some of the medical care that we're blessed with. A woman would die, many women would die in childbirth. So it can't mean that. <clears throat> and even today with all of our modern uh, medicine and the, the benefits we have, even then, sometimes women cannot be uh, preserved through childbirth. So the third interpretation is something that Joel and that other fellow uh, represents, Johannes Wesleyanus, uh, draw attention to, is that in this verse there's a, an article that most of our translations don't include. It's in the Greek, but most of our translations don't 
uh, included. And it would go make the verse go something like this. <clears throat> Yet she will be saved through the, the childbirth. Now, there are commentators who poo-poo that, but the idea is there is a specific childbirth through whom she will be saved. Uh, obviously, being a mother is a wonderful honor, wonderful privilege, but there's another thought, perhaps, that there's another thought being driven at here, and I'm just going to read you several sentences of Joel's paper. He says, he writes, to what specific childbearing is this referring? It is the promised childbirth of the Messiah. Paul is affirming a spiritual and theological promise, now a reality, through which women and men are saved over against pagan ideas in Ephesus or any age. Artemis was a goddess of fertility and a protector of women in childbirth. It only makes sense that the ultimate correction of all false views is to return to the word of God and to the very Christ who is the Savior of all. Being saved through the childbirth is referring to the coming of Christ and our relationship to him. Motherhood is a blessing, but it is not a means of salvation, and it, and it is not even a necessary fruit of salvation. Your primary role as a woman is first and foremost to find your rest in Christ and to have a relationship with him. The fruit of that relationship are listed in the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, 22 to 23. Childbearing is not listed among them. A woman, though she might chafe perhaps at some of the rules for worship, still enjoys the great blessing of redemption through Christ. And it's in no way minimizing the wonderful joys and blessings of motherhood and having children. Our ultimate hope is only in Christ. <clears throat> so her submission isn't a demeaning or a taking away of that hope. And the verse ends with that there's a spiritual fruit desired by her, just like of the men. The men are to offer a prayer without anger, without arguing. The woman is to be saved through the child book if she continues in faith, love, holiness, with self-control. Both men and women are to pursue godliness. They're both to pursue holy hearts. They're both to pursue um, self-control. They're both to honor the Lord and the callings that he's given them and in the proper order of worship that he's putting before us in this chapter. It's not a demeaning to any of us to do as God has laid out. Uh, and all of us need to embrace the plan that God has for us. Men truly leading like they're supposed to, and women responding to that in faith, love, and uh, self-control. So God has a plan for our worship as well as for all of our lives and the order of all of our lives, and it's 
God's calling for you and I to come and embrace that calling with faith and hope. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. And even though it gives us uh, portions that are challenging and difficult to understand and we wrestle with, we know that you have done all things well and you have ordered our lives and our world and and our worship and our church according to your um, glorious wisdom. And we pray, O Lord, that you will give us hearts that are willing to follow you knowing that the path that you have laid for us is best. And that through walking that path, we will honor you. Help us to do that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.